0: Well this week I was, I was reading an article, doing some little bit of research on, on the most quoted quotes from movies. So I came across this article from the American Film Institute that listed the top 100 quotes from movies of all time. Now I read some other articles and there's some discrepancies, but the top 10 of this article and many other articles seem to be about the same. So one of the top, here are a few of the top 10 from, from The Godfather. I'm going to make him an offer that he can't refuse. Perhaps you're you're familiar with that. Um, The next quote is uh, sudden impact. Go ahead, make my day. Yeah, I think some of us are mouthing that with me. This is one I'm pretty sure you guys are not gonna have a hard time realizing where it's from. May the force be with you. Clearly that's from Star Trek. Um, I'm just kidding, I know it's from Star Wars. Not, not a Trekkie, not a Star Wars person, but I know, I, I, I've heard that. And, and probably my favorite on this list is from Cool Hand Luke, where it says, uh, what we have here is a failure to communicate. And, and so this were some of the top 10. I don't know about you guys, uh, I quote movies a lot, and I m- majority of what I say I feel like are either song lyrics or movie quotes or, or quotes from TV shows, but does anyone have like a movie quote that they just say a lot? just a show of hands. Can anybody think of, okay, that's one thing that I say. If, if you want to, just go ahead and s- say it out loud. Go ahead and share it with you. What, what is the quote? Well, see you later. <laughs> Big old say. Well, see you later. Yeah. D- from Dumb and Dumber? Okay. I, I, think, I didn't know where it was from. So, Anyone else have a, one of those quotes that they just tend to say a lot? A <laughs> I have a bad feeling about this. One of mine is from Dumb and Dumber as well. Um, so you're saying there's a chance. Um, and so this one that I, I quote often. So I asked Tiffany this question. Like, what movie quote do I say often and without missing a beat? She looked at me and said, you, from, from Home Alone 2, where, where Kevin is talking about his ice cream, and he says, make it three... I'm not driving, and like that's my quote that I say all the time apparently, like we're having biscuits with our tea, it's like how many biscuits do you want? Make it three, I'm not driving, or whatever it might be. It's just, it's the thing that I quote most often. And the reason that we bring this up, and Stephen already kind of alluded to this, is Exodus 34, six and seven is the most quoted scripture by the Bible. And so as we walk through this scripture, like it is just continues to be quoted time and time again. And these phrases, they come up constantly throughout the Bible. You would be hard pressed to pick five random psalms and not find a phrase of this in there. You'd be hard pressed to pick two that you don't find this statement made in the Bible. And here's the amazing thing: is one of the reasons like I'm really excited about this series is we've really been starting to kind of hash this out. We've been trying to, to discuss this and work our way through this series over the last few months. And as I've been studying for this series, like as I've been in our our time of reading the Bible, like it just continues to pop up time and time again. And it's like, you know when you buy a car and then you start seeing that car everywhere else? Like that's what has began to happen as I read this passage and I see like, okay, this is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible itself. Like you just continue to see it everywhere. Like you can't miss it. It seems like every single day when Tiffany and I are doing our Bible reading, like this statement is popping up. And the Bible only has to say something one time for it to be true. But the the gospel writers continue, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they continue to bring this passage up. They continue to make this statement known time and time again about who God is. And the question that God answers here isn't what he should be called. God isn't telling us, hey, guys, here's who you need to put my name in on your phone so you know who is calling you. God isn't saying, here's the name that I'm going to put on my CV. He's not saying that. What he's saying is not just what I need to be called. What he is telling us is is what I am like. So in this text, what happens for us is God pulls back the curtain and he shows us the depths of himself. He shows us his very core. He shows us his very identity. He shows us his very self. He's like, this is who I am. He shows us the very essence of who he is. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and just stay flipped to to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. And I just want to read this. We just heard part of this played, but I just want us to grasp the entirety of what's happening here. So Exodus 4 verses 1 through 7, here's, here's what happens. Then the Lord told Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first one. I will write on them the same words that were on the tablets you smashed. Be ready in the morning to climb up Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on top of the mountain. No one else may come with you. In fact, no one is to appear any, anywhere on the mountain. Do not even let the flocks or the herds graze near the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two tablets of stone like the first one. Early in the morning, he climbed Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord called down on the cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of him, Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I will lay the sins on their parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even the children in the third and the fourth generation. And so what I want us to do as we get ready to dive in today, is I think it's really important and really necessary for us to kind of see the context of what is happening here. What has set up this moment for us? Because what's going to happen when we start to see this in its entirety, when we take this as a a whole, as Scripture, and here's the thing, Scripture is never meant to be isolated from itself. And so we can look at this as a whole and we see a beautiful picture. We see something incredible beginning to take place. So one of the first things God says to Moses is chisel out two tablets like the ones you had before that you smashed. Okay, like what what happened here? There's clearly a story that is going on there. And so if we just rewind two chapters back to, to Exodus 32, we see the story. So Moses has been up on the mountain with God. And he's been in communication with God and things have been just incredible moment for Moses. And God has, has taken this, these two tablets and he has written these, these 10 rules, these 10 laws, perhaps you're familiar with them, the 10 commandments. And he has showed Moses, this is what I expect of my people. This is how I want my people to live. This is how people who are in relationship with me should be different. This is how they should live. And as he's there on the mountain, he has done that. And then Moses starts making his way down the mountain. And when he does, he realizes and he notices they have, they've got, made a gold calf. And in this gold calf, they've turned to, to Aaron. And be like I think Moses is probably dead. He's, he's been gone a long time. So make us an idol. Make us a calf so that we can worship. So they take all the gold in the camp and they build it together. They make this huge calf. And Moses sees this. And he, and he gets pretty upset, rightfully so. I mean, the first four commandments are about worshiping God alone. And here he is holding these commandments and looking at this golden calf and be like, something does not add up here. Something doesn't match here. And so out of frustration and anger or whatever it may be, the, the tablets are smashed. And so God is telling him, you know what? Go back on the mountain again. So let's look back at verse, no, chapter 32. Let's see this moment that's transpiring here. So Moses is on this mountain and, and things are going well. He has been in, re, in, in communication with God. This is awesome. And in verse seven, everything changes. The Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away and I am commanding them from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf. They have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought us out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Leave me alone and my fierce anger, so my fierce anger can blaze against them, and I will destroy them, and I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. We're going to come back to this passage in just a minute. But I just want us to think for just a minute, just sit in verses 9 and 10 for just a second I know how rebellious and stubborn these people are leave me alone so my fierce anger can burn against them You guys you guys feel that The anger there The frustration there The hurt there like just see like this is this moment it's like okay it seems like Israel has finally done it they have finally pushed God past his breaking point. They have finally reached the time where where they've gone too far. It is too much. They have finally pushed God over the edge. Can just can anyone identify with that? Like maybe in Maybe if you have kids, you know that moment where like your patience, it just runs out. You're like, you have pushed me too far and you are about to lose it. So you're like, you gotta walk out of the room and get yourself together. Or, or maybe it's like with a boss and they continue to push you and they continue to push you and they continue to give you these unrealistic expectations. And finally like, yeah, no more bro, we're done here. And it just pushes you over the edge. And it seems like that is the moment that God is here. This is like, that just seems like, okay, enough's enough. I mean, think of everything that he has done for them, the way that he has rescued them and the way that he has been there for them time and time again. I mean, God started this entire nation of Israel out of a hundred year old man and a 90 year old woman whose womb that was nearly dead. They have wandered from place to place and somehow, some way they have continued to prosper. They have continued to grow. God has saved them from famine. He has rescued them from slavery. He has brought them through the Red Sea on dry land. He has fought battles for them time and time again. He has been there for them. He literally rains honey bread from the sky for them. And yet, here they are. They've rebelled against him. They've turned against him again. And it seems like God has reached his breaking point. It seems like this is the moment that no more is going to be done. All hope seems lost. The situation just seems so, so terrible. Everything seems so helpless. And I got to admit, if I was God, I, I, to be honest, I would have made it to this point with the people of Israel. Like I would have snapped a long time ago and perhaps you would have too. But you know, just giving myself the benefit of the doubt, like if I was God, this, this might've been the breaking point. And if God was like any other God, This would have been long ago. He would have wiped wiped these people out and started again with Moses. And then when Moses later screws up, he would have wiped him out and be like, what do I do now? But here's the thing, friends. God is not like any other God. He is Yahweh, the Lord, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That is who he is. And so here's what we find about God. His hope is found in God's name. His name is full of mercy. It's in this context. It is in this moment that God, it is in this story that God reveals himself to us. That so we find in verse 14 where he says, the Lord changes his mind and he doesn't bring about the terrible disaster that he is planning. This is the context here. It's in the light of these people being sinful and rebellious and turning against him and literally breaking nearly every commandment that he has said not to do. And God is reminding them of who he is and what he is like because his name, it is full of hope. His name is full of mercy. Yes, in verse seven, it says that he will punish. He doesn't leave the the guilty unpunished. And in a few weeks, we're going to see how that's actually a really good thing and how it's a really merciful thing that he can do that he does that for us. And so our hope for this series is that we begin to see God for who he truly is, to see what he is and what he's like and, and who he is. A few years ago, we were, we were at a birthday party and at this time, like Ava was like eight or nine months old and, and so we, we were there and we, we were holding her and we gave her a breadstick. Do you guys know like those hard breadsticks that are like really long? And so they, we gave her one of these like, it's like 12, 14, 16 inches. It's, it's a long breadstick. And we hand it to her, but we realize, okay, if we give her the whole breadstick, like it's gonna break and she's chewing it. So we just, we give her just a little bit of sticking out of her hand and the rest is like holding out here. And she's eating this breadstick and we're just talking, hanging out at this birthday party. And the next thing we know, like Ava starts like crying, hysterically, like what is happening? Did did she bite her tongue? Did she bite her hand? Did you bite her finger? What happened? And come to find out, What happened is she ran out of breadstick. And like, here she is, She's like, my breadstick is gone. And like, we're just looking at the bottom. I was like, well, there's 10 inches hanging out the bottom of your breadstick. And so literally we just pushed a little bit up and then she's like, happy as can be. She goes and she starts eating it again. And guess what happens when, when she gets to her hand again? She melts down again and we're like, okay, push it up a little bit more. And here's the thing. If she would have just seen what was below the surface, the reaction would have been a lot different. If she would have just been like, oh, look at the other side of my hand. Look how much breadstick I have there. Like she would have responded so much different, so much more differently, right? And here's the thing. When we see who God truly is, we react and we respond differently. If we could see a level below the surface, if we could just see a bit more of who, what he was like, we would react and we would respond differently differently. I think that's why it's so important that God is pulling back the curtain. He's revealing himself to us. He's like, I will let you see what what I'm like. I will give you this opportunity to see who I am and what I'm like. Because what we believe about God will dictate how we worship him. What we believe about God will dictate how we worship him. If we are going to worship God correctly, we have to know him correctly. And if we look at verse 8, in chapter 34, we see what Moses does when God reveals his character. He reveals his name to him. Moses falls immediately to his face, to the ground, and he worships. It's the only thing he could do. It's the only way Moses could respond. Is when he heard about this character of God. It's the only thing he could do. Is he, he could just worship him. And so I just want us to think about some of the ways that if we misunderstand God, that we worship him Incorrectly. Maybe we think like that God is, is just someone who gives us everything that we want. And then what happens is we don't get what we want. God doesn't answer a prayer the way that we think we should. And so we, we don't worship him anymore. We're like, okay, God, that, if you didn't give me what we, what I want, we're we're through. We're done. Or maybe, maybe you think, like, God is just this, this wise old grandpa who gives these unwanted advice. Sometimes you take it, sometimes you leave it. It's really just kind of up to you. If, it, if the advice kind of jives with what you want to do, you'll take it. If not, then you'll leave it. When we, when we, when we think of God that way, we don't worship him correctly because we fail to submit our lives to him. We, sub, we fail to believe that he has our best interest in mind. We, we fail to believe that he actually knows what's best for us and wants what's best for us. So when we don't understand God correctly, we don't worship him correctly. And so he gives us his name to help us understand who he is and what he is like. And here's the thing, as we read through the Bible, like names were, were something that was really significant. And even parts of the world today, names have a lot of meaning. They're not just like, oh, that's a cute name or that's a clever name. Let me name my child this. Like Elon Musk would be out, would be out of luck. Right. But like, because, but in the Bible names are really important. Think about this guy, Simon Peter. Okay. So the name Simon, it means read. Okay. And I don't know if you guys know much about reads, but you put a lot of pressure on a read. Guess what happens? It, it breaks. It shatters. It splinters. It, it's, it doesn't stand up under pressure. It, it doesn't hang tight. And that is who Peter was. And that's what Peter's name was. And so everything in him would be, when the time gets tough, when the pressure is on, I break and I snap. And then he confesses something that, that Jesus is the Lord, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, okay, Peter or Simon, your name's no longer Simon. You're going to be called Peter, which means rock. You guys ever tried to break a rock? It's not very easy. Does a rock crum- crumble under pressure? No. And it changes who he is. And, and he, has a little, he, he has a little moment where he goes back to the reed, and, and he breaks and he falls apart when the pressure's on, when Jesus is betrayed. But other than that, man, Jesus, Peter, he turns into the rock. And he is, not the rock, he turns into a rock. And he becomes the man that God sees, Jesus sees him as. Or, or think about Abraham. Before his name turns to Abraham, his name is Abram. And Abram means exalted father. Problem is, Abraham doesn't, Abram doesn't have any kids. It's hard to exalt a father who isn't a father. But God has made this promise to Abraham. He says, through you, you're going to, there's, your descendants are going to be numerous. They're all the stars in the sky. And he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to change your name. Your name's no longer going to be Abram, exalted father. It's going to be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And you see how that just changes everything in him. I mean, we can look at Hosea's kids, Lo Amy means, no, not my people, right? And and so that's what he says. Like, he he names his kid, not my people, because the people of Israel have rebelled against him. And and later, God changes the name to to Amy, meaning my people. Like, Hosea's kids are going to need to be in therapy for the first few years of their life because of their names, but but God has said, like, he changes their names to remind them of, of who he is. And so what God is doing for us he isn't just telling us what we should call him, but rather he is telling us, this is who I am. This is what I am like. Here is God. In self-revelation, self-reve- re- revealing himself to Moses, he's saying, Here is saying, here's me, here's who I am. And God's character is revealed in his name. And friends, I want to make sure we, we hear this. God is not trying to hide himself from you. He's not trying to keep you guessing as to what he is like or the way that he feels about you or or the way that he feels about the world. He's not trying to hide these things from you. He has revealed this to you. And the first name that he uses, the first way that he is revealed is is Yahweh. So look at verses five and six. Let's, Let's read this. It says, then the Lord came, this is back to chapter 34, if you're following along. Back to 34, verses five and six. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh. And so, what I want us to think about for just a minute is, is what does Yahweh? say about God? Like, what is it revealing to us about God? If you guys want to, at some point, there's an incredible video that that the Bible Project does to describe who Yahweh is. Like, I'd love to share that link with you. They do a great job in like four minutes that I couldn't do in 40 minutes trying to describe who his name and what Yahweh means. So if you want that link, I can send it to you. Um, But I'll give you a little bit of the Cliff Notes version of that. But for our purposes, I want us to really focus in on is what, not just what the name Yahweh is, means, but what does it reveal about God? And so the name Yahweh really represents all that he is and all that he will do and all that he has done. The name Yahweh it is it's a representation of his saving work and his saving power. And this is a direct quote from, from Tim Mackey in the Bible Project video. He says this, he says, in other words, God's name means he is the one who is and the one who who was, and the one who will be. God's existence doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. This God simply is. That's that's who he is. And if we look to where we first see God's name revealed in Moses Moses chapter 3, in Exodus chapter 3, God reveals his name to Moses. But he goes to this burning bush, and there's this bush that's burning, and it, it begins to talk to, to, to Moses. Incredible story. Go and read it later. Um, but it's this moment, and, he, and finally the bush commissions Moses to go to Pharaoh to go and set God's people, the Israelites, free as they're in slavery to Egypt. And there's some, there's some back and forth that goes on there. And finally Moses is like, okay, suppose I go, and suppose they ask who it is who sent me. What's, what's the name that you sent me? And God responds, gives him his name. He says, which is literally translates, I will be. He says, I am sent me. Translates, I will be. Now, it would be really hard for Moses to go to the people and say, I will be has sent me because only God is I. Only God can say, I will be. So he turns around and he gives Moses another name. He gives him the name, he will be. Gives him the name Yahweh. And so this is what he's doing. This is who he is. He's like, I, he will be. B, this is the personal name that we find for God, used 6, 000, over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. This is the name we find. And the people in that day, they were really concerned about using this name inappropriately and reading it out loud flippantly. And so they put in this literary device so when they were reading the scriptures that they would not say the name Yahweh out loud. And then, you know what that word is translated to? Lord. And so if you see Lord in all caps, that's what That's the word. That's what we're finding here. That's what is playing out for us. And so this is what God is saying in Exodus 4 and 5. He's saying, I am the he will be. I am the I am. I am the one who was and is and is to come. I am the one who sustains everything. I am am God. What I want us to notice here as we see in verses 4 and 5, notice who's doing the speaking. Notice who's doing the talking. The Lord came down from the cloud and stood there with him and he called out his, his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh. Who's doing the speaking? You can say it out loud, it's okay. God, yeah, Yahweh's doing the speaking. God is doing the talking here. And one of the things that Yahweh begins to reveal to us is the relational nature of himself is, is God, is a relational God. Th- like, we're, there's a conversation that's taking place here. There's communication that's happening here. God is not a, is not a force, God is not a, a concept or an idea. God is not like de- detached and unconcerned. No, God is relational. God is very concerned about his people. We are the only, humans are the only part of creation that is called very good. We are the only thing that was made in the image of God and God cares deeply. He has this desire for relationship with us. And I want us to look again at Exodus 32 and there's some relational message that is going on here. There's an incredible dialogue that begins to happen. Look at verses 9 through 14 in Exodus 32 again. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them, and I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But the Lord tried to pacify the Lord, his God. O Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with the evil intentions of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven. And I will give them all this land that I have promised to your descendants. And they will possess it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring upon his people. Do you guys see the relational, the relationship here? Like do you guys see what's happening? God literally is sharing his feelings with Moses. He is sharing how he feels. I don't know how it makes you feel to know that God has feelings, but this is what he's doing. He is saying, Moses, he's, he's, he's venting. He's sharing what's going on in his heart with Moses. And then Moses talks back to God. Not like in a, a bad way, but he, he speaks to God. He's like, God, remember. Remember those promises that you made. Remember who you are. And there's like this dialogue that begins to happen here. And then God, he relents. And, and he doesn't do the thing that he said he's going to do. Like, this is a beautiful picture. This is painting up, this is setting up for us, like, this intimate friendship and relationship that is going on, and that is who, that's who Yahweh is. Yahweh is relational. He, he, God is He's relational. Look again at verse 5. It says, then the Lord came down. That's a relational move. God comes down, Moses goes up, and they meet together in this relational moment that is happening here. Yahweh, he is relational. He is the I Am. And over the next few weeks, as we continue to walk through these names that God gives himself, we're going to start to see more and more about what it means to be Yahweh. We're going to start to see more and more what it looks like to be who he is. And each week, what we're going to do is we're going to continue to look at this through, through the light of Jesus. We're going to continue to look at what, how Jesus shows us what, what God is like. And we're going to begin to see that more and more. And I can't think of a better way to describe this, this idea of Yahweh and Jesus than just quoting Paul's words in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. Here's what Paul writes about Jesus. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things that we can't see such as thrones, kingdom, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything has been created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Translation Yahweh. He is Yahweh. This is, what we, this is what we see. And so every time, every action that we see of Jesus, he is revealing to us what God is like. Every time he heals someone, every act of compassion, every act of judgment, everything that he does, he is showing us the character of God. And we, as we read through the Gospels, like, we can find time and time again where we see like, Jesus is relational as well. I mean, think about the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's there, he brings three buddies with him. He's like, sit here, be with me. I need you because this is a tough time. I need, he needs a relationship. And so I think for for most of us, as we start reading through this and we're thinking, okay, that's that's good. What does this mean for me? Because I think that's where, that's what all of us want. We want that moment, right? Like for Stephen and I, like we were excited about the series, still am, but we don't just want this to be like a nerd exercise for you. We don't want you to be able to go to a table quiz and be like, oh, I know what Yahweh means. Or I know what slow and compassionate means. Like we want something so much more than that. We want this to begin to shape who you are and, and change the way that we, that we worship. So what does it mean for us? Perhaps you've heard the statement that, that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. May, maybe you've heard that. And, and part of that is true, sure. But the, there's, there's also a big part of that that it isn't actually true. Because there's no denying Christianity is a, relation, a religion, right? We, we can't deny that. But what is trying to be communicated through that statement is is Christianity is not about moralistic or legalistic teaching, trying to make our way to God. And and it's not. That's not what Christianity is about. It's about a God who loved his people so much, a Yahweh who came down to his people and rescued and saved them. But I think what the statement says is like, uh, it's not a religion, it's a relationship for me. That just leaves me with all kinds of questions. Okay, if it's a relationship, how do I get in a relationship what does a relationship look like? What do I have to do in this relationship? Like, okay, if it's a relationship, like I've got to know like what it looks like to be in relationship. So let's answer those questions, right? Let's, let's look into this for, for a few moments. The God of the universe, the creator of the universe is inviting you into relationship with him. Friends, I did, just don't miss this. Let's just pause right here for just a second. I really want you guys to sit with that for just a moment. That the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the great I am, the alpha and the omega, the one who spoke the world into existence wants to be in relationship with you. May that never stop blowing our minds. May that never stop keeping us or or never just become old news. May that always move us to worship because it is incredible. It is amazing that that God wants to be in relationship with us. He loves us so deeply that he sent his son to die for us, but he doesn't just love us, he likes us. Like he wants to be with us. He wants to spend time with us. And so to accept God's invitation into relationship with him it changes, it alters, and it transforms everything in our lives. As we become part of as we join and we become part of this relationship, like everything begins to change. Like think about this and just how this is true in in human relationships. If you are married, you don't go out every night with your buddies and and just leave your wife at home, right? Or your your husband at home. If so, you probably aren't going to be in that relationship very long. Like it changes things. If you have kids, unless I'm doing it wrong, it changes everything. Like, you're not just going to go out and do the same things that you begin to do. And if you have a job, guess what? That relationship, it changes things because no, now I have to be somewhere during this time and I can't just do whatever I want. And like on a very basic human level, relationships change things. None more so than our relationship with God and following after him. I mean, think of how perfectly Jesus did this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus makes this prayer. He says, not my will be done, but your will be done. He submits himself completely to him. And so this is what begins to happen in relationship is, is, we are transformed. And so I think the question is first, how do we get in relationship with God? Do we, do we text him, meet him up for dinner? Do we just go out for enough coffees until eventually we both concede that we're in a relationship? Like, do we go out for dinner and then we we're, we're in relationship are we really brave and change our status on Facebook to in a relationship and hope he doesn't freak out? Like, how do we reach this moment of, of getting in relationship with God? This is the simple part, right? We, we say yes to following Jesus. We say yes to what Jesus has for us. We decide that we are going to live for him and for him alone. We're baptized, we're discipled, we send the, spend the rest of our lives living everything we do through the context of, of this kingship, this lordship of Jesus. And so the, the first question is, how do we get in relationship? I think most of us got that one. But I think the one that's a little more nuanced is, what does it look like to be in relationship with God? Like, what, what begins to change in our lives? What begins to happen when we are in relationship with God? And, and you know, this is one of the things, like, when, you, when you're married, there's some expectations, there's some things that have to be discussed, and it's like, okay, here's, here's the reality, here's the expectations, here's what is expected of you, here's what's not expected of me, and, and is there, there's that sort of thing. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. And I think, honestly, this is one of the reasons that our our series is so important for us, is because it's teaching us a proper understanding of who God is. Because if we know who God is, our lives begin to change. As we learn to know him more and we get to know him better, we start to see who God is. And here's the thing. The more that we get to know God, the more we start to see the things that he loves, we start to care for the things that he, we learn about the things that he cares about, as we are in relationship with him, as we are living for him, the things that he cares about begin to be the things that we care about. The things that he loves begins to be the things that we love. The people that, that he loves are the people that we start to love. In our life, it starts to look like him. This is what being in relationship is. It's like we start to, our lives start to model, it starts to look like God, and we start to live out this way. We start to do the things that he's called us to do. As we talk about reading your Bible constantly, it's not just a good thing to do. We read our Bible because it reveals who God is, but we don't just read what, read the Bible. We do what it says. We live it out. We start living in this way, and there's a reason That Christian literally means little Christ. As we start to resemble him, we start to look at him. And I want to double down on a a challenge I made for you guys a a few weeks ago. Can I just encourage you, 12 times this year, read through the Sermon on the Mount. Read through the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Do it once a month. I would recommend some other reading as well, of course. But spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount. Read it once a month. And start living out those words of Jesus. And start seeing what that looks like. And here's what I've began to, to learn is I've been married longer. I've started to, to learn the things that annoy Tiffany more. And I've started to learn the things that, that brings her joy. And as I've been married longer, I, she's not here to, to dispute this. I've tried to do the things that annoy her less and the things that bring her joy more. Like that's just what starts to begin to happen. And here's, what's beca- here's what started to happen is it's no longer just been like, okay, I guess I have to not annoy my wife. It started to be like, well, I want, my, I want my, life, my wife to be happy. I want her to have joy. I want her to enjoy life. And because if she's annoyed, guess who else is going to be annoyed? I'm going to be annoyed. And if she's, if she's joyful, I'm going to be joyful. And it started to change of I have to do this to more of like, as I've grown in knowledge and love for her and in relationship with her, I've started to do the things that brings her joy because it's the things that bring me joy. And this is what it looks like as we're in relationship with God. As we continue in this relationship, our hearts literally begin to be transformed. They begin to change. As we continue to put him in and we continue to learn about him and study him and believe him and do what he says, our hearts and things and lives begin to change. And here's the thing. The more that we surrender ourselves to him and the more that we align ourselves with his word, with his mission, and with his heart, the more we grow in relationship with him. And so as we continue to talk about throughout this series that God has a name, man, it's my prayer that this is what we're doing, that we are aligning ourselves with him, that we are submitting ourselves to him. Guys, get to know God. Read your Bible. Do what it says. If you're not in a relationship, if you've never said yes to this relationship with Jesus, do that and grow, and get to know him more, and get to know him better. There's not a better thing to do as you start start a new year. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you.